Remember coming over here, couldn't figure out why people were queuing in a pub. Why is everybody queuing for their drink? Stop queuing. Being polite in Ireland, to me, I think, is to be very friendly, to have the chats, to listen to the boring joke, to laugh. Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, and yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. You may have a picture in your mind when I say the word immigrant. For some, it's a dirty word. For others, it means someone who needs help or an inspiring hero. The truth is, and don't tell anyone this, but we immigrants are mostly people who live regular lives, subscribe to streaming television services, work in a variety of jobs, socialise with friends, fall in and out of love, say and do stupid things, and pick our kids up from school. I mean, we're everywhere, guys. Nine million of us are living here. Whatever picture you conjure, this podcast is here to transform that into something way more interesting. On this, our first ever episode, I'm sharing a conversation with the actor Siobhan McSweeney. You may know her as the caustic, hilarious Sister Michael in Lisa McGee's runaway success, the Channel 4 series Derry Girls, or more recently as the host of The Great Pottery Throwdown. I absolutely loved talking with Siobhan and I know you will love listening to her. Just a heads up that Siobhan, like most Irish people I know, refers to something called the crack. Most straightforwardly, it's a term that's associated with lively conversation and good times. Okay, on with the show. My name is Siobhan McSweeney and I'm an immigrant. Thank you, Siobhan, for coming on the show. <laughs> Lovely to have you. Do you feel like an immigrant? Occasionally, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you mean by the word immigrant. I think being an Irish immigrant, you occupy a very strange space what makes you different from all the other immigrants. First of all, you're white, so it's not obvious until you open your mouth. The fact that the majority of people in the UK, and I don't say this lightly, don't really understand that Ireland is not part of the UK. The ones who do just sort of think that I'm that famous phrase, the good immigrant, you know, you're different. But of course, not you. At least you can speak the language. I never know how to pitch how much people know about Ireland because the gaps in the majority of people's knowledge is, is so immense. The year I left, I was talking about euro and they couldn't figure out why I needed the euro. That happens all the time still, though. Really? Oh, yeah. Jesus, you wouldn't. And where's Cork? And I'm like, fair enough if you don't know where Cork is. But what they're asking is, is it in the Republic or in the north of Ireland. And do you put it down to just lack of education? It is lack of education. It's also lack of interest. That lack of interest also comes from guilt, shame, a psychic absence in their souls. I really, really do believe this. If you do not know your history, you don't know who you are. And this country has systemically created a vacuum of this nation's past that people have had to pour stuff into just to feel whole. And so Cork, tell me about Cork. I grew up slap bang between McCroom and Cork City, right. uh, quite a country uh, area. Because I grew up hearing stories from my mum. She's a of a different generation, obviously, than you. She was small town, McCroom, mm -hmm. very Catholic. Mm -hmm. She was sent to the convent. The brother was sent to the seminary. I know McCroom quite well. I grew up not that far from it, actually. Mm. It is a different country. It is a different country. If you look at the changes that have happened in the last decade alone, when I came over here and was told that I was oppressed by the Catholic Church, I got very confused because I didn't think I had been. In fact, they had nothing really to do with my life. 
So to find out that I was being oppressed by them was quite a shocking thing to hear. I mean, you find out, I suppose, in some level you have been because they've been so ingrained in every aspect in Irish life for such a long time. But that that grip was loosening, even while I, while I was a teenager. I recognise the country she talks about that way, though. I definitely do recognise it. I understand why you would, would want to leave that. Mm. But that's not really the country I grew up in. So tell me about the country you grew up in. I grew up in... A country that was, the the grip of religion was finally beginning to be relinquished. And there's a great dissonance, I think, that Irish people can have when it comes to religion. And by religion, I mean Catholicism, essentially. The cognitive dissonance of sort of being able to go to Mass, but also not believe it, but also go to the funeral, but also not listen. You don't listen to everything the priest says. You know, that sort of pick and mix aspect of it. Obviously, I can only speak for myself. I certainly don't mean to disrespect anybody's faith either. I was quite a, a nerdy, weird child okay. and uh, spent summers inside reading that kind of weird behaviour. I was given the choice when I was a very small girl, I could go to elocution classes or I could get piano lessons. And I chose piano lessons and I got sent to <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Which makes me wonder how bad was my elocution that uh, they couldn't understand me and I loved it I got sent to speech and drama after that I really loved it I even remember the poem that clicked for me it was a poem in our school books good afternoon sir smash up we're having tea you do take a cup sugar and milk now let me see two lumps I think good gracious me the silly thing slipped off your knee that kind of thing and for some reason I don't know what it was I listened to the words and suddenly I went oh yeah it's trying to be funny then I said it as if I was the person. It was as simple as that. There's no great epiphany. But I was young enough for that to be actually a revelation, saying it out loud. And I loved it. And I went to youth theatre when I was in secondary school. And I loved that. Just the crack. Playing. Playing was so much fun. And, and did you feel, I'm good at this? I felt that it made me really happy. It still makes me really happy and that the best thing in the world would be to be as happy as that all the time. Both my parents were very against the idea, very against the idea. I understand, like, imagine we've given our daughter a great education. Now she wants to be a bloody actor. What a waste. Money is important. And my mother really instilled in me how important as a woman it was to have my own money, your own income, your own independence. So what did they say you should be? Well, I studied science in university. Oh, did you? Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah, well, neither (laughs) neither did the science department. I was a dreadful scholar. I was in the drama society the whole time. Like, I tried. I tried to be good. I tried to find out where the physics lab was, but it never was the right lab. The first time I used my lab coat, I remember taking the plastic off it, putting it on, shoving a jumper up the back of it and playing Dr. Mathilde von Sand in Die Physiker. Uh, Okay. Yeah, no, I was dreadful. I was dreadful, but it was the best thing I did going to university. Was it? Why? Because I found my tribe. I really found my tribe. I found who I was. I found, looking back, if I hadn't done four years of a science degree, I wouldn't be an actor now. I had to break my parents' hearts because in my final year, I auditioned for drama schools over here. And I got a place and I sort of went to mum and dad and I said, well, they've decided. And they were like, oh, I suppose you're going to London. And I suppose I am. 
So you got into, which school was it that you went I to? I ended up going to Central. Um, were you the only Irish person there? No, I was not. Ah, there were and a few. weirdly, I wasn't even the only one from Cork. There were three of us from Cork. One of them was a very good friend of mine from home, who we met in Drama Society in Dramat in, in UCC. And you both auditioned together? Yeah, and... like they auditioned something like 1,300 and our class had 30. You know, it's hard to get in. It was great. I arrived going, this is going to be fantastic. I remember thinking, oh God, it's great. Like everywhere is connected. So like growing up in the countryside in County Cork, like two buses a day. I'm going, oh sure, all I have to do is get on. Walk out the door. Like, yeah, walk out the door and then get a tube and then get a train and then get a bus. Isn't that amazing? The escalators here are very quick. You have to approach them with respect and with care because you can die. (laughs) Uh, And also, gosh, it's all flooding back now. I learned quickly to stop talking to people at bus stops. uh, That never, never ended well. And it took me ages to not feel dreadfully rude that I wasn't even acknowledging the other person at the bus stop. This young thing talking to anybody at the bus stop. So you just strike up a conversation about the weather or about... Yeah, or, yeah. oh, four minutes, not bad. You can imagine the absolute scrapes I got myself into. That was pure country bumpkin stuff, I think. And when I moved over here first, I didn't identify in any way with the London Irish immigrant experience. There was sort of a recognition of the London Irish experience, but not really identifying it, not being able to identify with it. Is there anything that you sort of check out with an Irish person straight away in London? Or I think it sort of goes back to what I previously said about sort of this London Irish experience and identity. So... You don't really want to meet somebody and be talking where the best, where you can buy Club Orange and Barry's Tea and... Tatoes. And Tatoes, the bloody Tato conversation, like, which is great and all, and you're finding a common ground, but it is also a rejection of the, what I call the hang sandwiches in Hammersmith. Explain. The Irish Cultural Centre, I mean, it's a fantastic place. I think I was going to a Cayley there one night or something, going for a drink beforehand. And just that sort of slight sigh of going, oh no, it's going to be ham sandwiches and people crying into their pints of Guinness, talking about the old country, because their experience is completely different to mine. I chose to come here. I'm not that big on ham, if I'm honest with you. (laughs) But it's pronounced hang sandwiches. Hang sandwiches, hang sandwiches. Um, Yeah, I trained here and, and I really like London. And it feels that the work I'm interested in doing is is here and when I moved to Manchester the work didn't follow or it certainly felt when I graduated that you had to be in London. I got to understand the industry that was the London industry so it made no sense to go to Dublin. Also they didn't want me there. I mean let's be completely honest it was another country's national theatre that hired me before my own. It is repeatedly another country's television production teams, film production teams, another nation's state-sponsored radio that have hired me rather than my own. Hi, just popping in here to ask if you could help an immigrant out. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and recommend it to friends. A five-star rating and review on iTunes also goes a long way towards getting the word out. 
And we're really keen that the podcast is as interactive as possible. So follow us on the socials, all the details are in the show notes, and get in touch with your suggestions of interesting immigrants to feature on the show. We'd really love to hear from you. Thanks, guys. Now, back to the conversation. I mean, when my mother died, I think she was very much the linchpin, as is often the way. So I think we were all quite lost for, well, we still are, you know. You, 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 How you old lived, were you? I was 27, yeah. Was it a sudden thing? It was, it was very sudden, very shocking. She went in with suspected pneumonia and they discovered an aortic aneurysm. And uh, yeah, it was only a couple mm. of months after that. So were you there with her? The day she went into a coma and subsequently died... I was over here. I was over here packing up my flat to move back to Ireland. And I remember getting the call and just hopping on any bus and going to Stansted and getting um, a Ryanair flight and bursting into the room. And my aunts and, you know, they were all doing the rosary. And my brother and dad were just staring in shock at the bed. It was dark and it was only, it wasn't even midday at that point. So I opened the curtains, opened the windows, I hopped into the bed with her and said very loudly, God, you'll do anything to get me back from London, won't you? And she started rustling, actually. But she, yeah, she didn't last too long after that. After she died, and I'm sure people have this, all I could see was her. I went to a, a funeral soon afterwards and they all thought I was her. All the older generation thought that I was her. And when my father died, all I can see in the mirror now is to lose one parent is unfortunate, to lose two is... Irresponsible. That's it. (laughs) It used to make me laugh how upset she would get every time I left going to London. Because for me, it wasn't a big journey. But of course, for her, it was a huge journey. She had a brother who was here. She had another brother who was in America. Her sister was up in in Dublin, like coming from West Cork, like you, the history of people leaving... Whereas that was my history, it wasn't my experience. It was easier for me to get to London than it was to get to Dublin. When I think back, like she must have been crumbling each time at the airport and I would be sort of giggling in her face going, oh my God, the drama. Because she wasn't a dramatic person at all, you know, it was my dad who was the drama queen. But of course, looking back on it, every departure is an echo of all the other departures, isn't it? And going away, you know, the Irish, the Irish, you know, we breed our children for them to take the boat kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. Can I ask you what, what you miss about Ireland when you're not there? Um, Apart from people, of course. I miss being understood in a way. I think there's quite a primal thing in me. But when I go home, I know I fit into that landscape. I know I'm of that landscape. Whereas here I'm a very, very delighted tourist. I miss the ease of, of just the social interactions, of the understanding that, of course, you'll talk to somebody at the bus stop. That, in general, people are people no matter what, but the social conventions we have, politeness is conflated with being sound. Whereas here, politeness is the equivalent of being formal and boundaried and respectful, which are all really great things. Being polite in Ireland, to me, I think, is to be very friendly, to offer your seat, to offer half your cake if you have it, to have the chats, to listen to the boring joke, to laugh. So when people I know have gone to Ireland and they mistake what we call politeness for intimacy, the fact that 
the waitress will be chatting away to somebody, they'll think that they actually have found a new friend or something, rather than, no, this is the social, inter- this, this is the contract we have. We have the chats, you order the food, I bring the food, we have the chats, you go home. And then it's great relief here, great relief here to have the boundaries, to have respect without emotional manipulation in a way, do you know, like yeah. a cleanliness to it really. Yeah. But I, I, do, I do miss the crack, the warmth. And the lack of taking yourself seriously. The generosity that isn't that you owe somebody back. I remember coming over here, couldn't figure out why people were queuing in a pub. Why is everybody queuing for their drink? Stop queuing. If there's three queuing to get a drink, turn around and say, I'll get the drinks. And I think that English people think that the stereotype about drink and Irish people, it's more like, well, why would we queue up for our half a bloody pint of cider each? What don't you miss about Ireland when, you, when you're not there? I don't miss the damp. I don't miss the parochial begrudgery. For every Irish person that leaves, there's somebody who stays. So there's not always a good relationship with the you left. Who do you think you are? It's still the worst thing in the world to be, which is to have notions. I remember that saying, have notions. In Australia, we say have tickets on yourself. That's quite nice. But have notions. Yeah. That's even before you even print the tickets, before you book the hall. (laughs) I mean, Australia's given you a chance. <laughs> In Ireland, true. we can't even have the thought of it. Yeah. I don't miss all the secrecy. There are lots of secrets in Ireland. For very practical and disturbing reasons. In what sense? I think historically we've had to keep a lot of things secret. And I think women have had to keep an awful lot of things secret. And that infiltrates every part of society. And I think that is where the cognitive dissonance comes from. In that, if you're laughing and smiling and keeping it a secret, what what does that do to you? And if that's one person in a family, then the family will also be like that. And then if it's one family in a village, then the whole village is going to be like that. Mm -hmm. And it sort of cleaves the psyche of the nation. And I'm talking about the Republic specifically. But if you look at Northern Ireland... And the trauma that they have gone through and are still dealing with. How do you deal with trauma? You cleave yourself in two. You keep the part that is damaged. You keep it out of sight and you smile and you pick up your kids from school and you feed them dinner and you watch the telly and you laugh. You go out for your few pints and you go on holiday, you know? And that can be, that can be like expressed in weird ways like, oh, I don't like it when such and such gets drunk. She gets dark. Can you give me your hot take on British politics at the moment? I don't think there's anything hot about my take. I've spoken repeatedly about British politics, probably far more than I have about Irish politics. The British people should be outraged at how they have been treated with such contempt by fools. The closer and closer I look at it from my incredibly privileged distance, all I can see, the crowd of fools treating the population like they are the fools. It's embarrassing, the stuff, and it's causing such a, a lack of interest in the people who, sh- who, who do have the power to change things. I don't feel any hope. It's not clear anymore what I can do. It's really confusing. I used to be so clear. Maybe that's part of growing up. But I think it's also more than that, just a reflection of the time we're in. I am filled with contempt and filled with anger 
And I'm very exhausted at the idea of pointing and blaming, pointing and blaming. And for the record, the only, only people that I feel that can be blamed for the state that we're in are the people who voted for the people who've caused this. A rusty spoon should have won against Boris. It doesn't matter about Corbyn, doesn't matter. A rusty spoon, a flat balloon should have done better. It's a grand thing for me to say with my Irish passport. You voted? I did indeed. You're a voter here? And I canvassed. Let's just say a lot of people heard my rusty spoon analogy. I, I don't know what's happening. Up is down, black is white. Do you have a guiding philosophy in life? No, I don't, but it has reminded me of um, when, after Mam died, a friend about a year later, when I was still crying, said to me, this too will pass. The idea that something will change. I was used to thinking, I think like a, a lot of people, to almost not enjoy the good things happening because the bad thing was just around the corner. But for some reason, this too will pass has actually liberated me from that feeling rather than um, sticking me to it. This too will pass. And I thought it was the most profound thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. I'd never heard it before. And I stopped crying out of pure shock and looked at her and I was like, that's brilliant. I was going on going, did you, did you have you? This too shall pass. And she was like, oh my God, how have you not heard this? All right, Siobhan McSweeney, thank you so much. Thank you. For joining us on I Am An Immigrant. Thank you. Huge thanks to Siobhan for such a great chat. I really related to a lot of what she was saying. And um, yeah, you know, she just says so many good things. Please, please watch Dairy Girls if you haven't already. She's just phenomenal in it. You've been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. Support for this podcast comes from the Paul Hamlin Foundation and it is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. We'll be in your feed every week with a new conversation. Thanks for listening and catch you later. Mm.